Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the 31st annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities will be held in Eatonville and Orlando January 25th through February 2nd. We say that Zora Neale Hurston and the Eatonville community are two sides of the same hand. We'll talk with Hurston scholar Cheryl Wall and discuss late 19th century guidebooks to Florida. You also had this other kind of cottage industry, which was writing travel brochures and travel pamphlets and, and books. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. This song is called Shove It Over, and it's a line and rhythm pretty generally distributed all over Florida. It was sung to me by Charlie Jones on a railroad construction camp near Lakeland, Florida. Uh, that, I gathered that in 33, 1933. <clears throat> when I get in the Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you line it? Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a <clears throat> Can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? In the 1930s and 40s, writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston was a celebrated figure of the Harlem Renaissance. Hurston is best remembered for her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, the story of Janie Crawford and her attempts at self-realization. Hurston's other novels include Jonah's Gourdvine, the story of an unfaithful man with an understanding wife, Moses, Man of the Mountain, a retelling of the biblical story of Moses, and Seraph on the Swanee, Hurston's only book that features white people as main characters. As an anthropologist who studied under the renowned Franz Boas, Hurston published two collections of folklore, Mules and Men and Tell My Horse. Hurston also wrote dozens of short stories, essays, and dramatic works. In 1948, Hurston's reputation and career were destroyed by false accusations that almost drove her to suicide. By the time Hurston died in 1960, she was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is again recognized as an important 20th century writer. Her work is taught in high school and college classes around the world, and two annual festivals celebrate her achievements. The Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is held in Eatonville during the last week of January, and ZoraFest is held in Fort Pierce in March. Zora Neale Hurston grew up in Eatonville, Florida, the oldest incorporated town entirely governed by African Americans. N.Y. Nathiri is founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. For Zora Neale Hurston, Eatonville represents the quintessential cultural impact that people of African ancestry, particularly rural southern uh, people in this country, contribute to the culture of the United States. And because she grew up in Eatonville, 
an all-black community where there was not artificial lens of viewing people, as she says in, in Mules and Men. In Eatonville, you got what your strengths brought you. Uh, if you were an energetic, aggressive, um, productive person, then that's who you were. If you were a lazy, no-count, ne'er-do-well, that's who you were, and you couldn't use as an excuse what they or the outside society did to you or against you. And at the same time, as a trained observer, as a person who had studied under Dr. Franz Boas, uh, a father of American anthropology, as a person who uh, had access to her native village and that community, she recognized the beauty, the intrinsic beauty, of the people of her heritage group. And not only recognized that beauty, but was able to present it in a way that others can recognize it. Uh, perhaps not so much during her lifetime with her contemporaries in Harlem, uh, some of whom thought that she was entirely too folksy, but the point is that uh, work that is truly of merit lives. And today, um, Zora Neale Hurston's work, her literature, her genius is acknowledged and celebrated uh, throughout the literary world. Zora Neale Hurston's literary career began even before she graduated from Barnard College in 1927. In 1925, Hurston's short story Spunk was included in a respected anthology called The New Negro. While attending college in New York, Hurston worked with Harlem Renaissance contemporaries, including Langston Hughes and Wallace Thurman, on the literary magazine Fire. After earning her Bachelor of Arts degree in anthropology, Hurston continued her graduate studies at Columbia University. In 1929, Hurston moved to the quiet town of O'Galley in Brevard County, Florida, to write her first and most important collection of African-American folklore. Florence M. Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida. Zora came to O'Galley in um, April of 1929, and she, her goal was to find a little place where she could, she could write and she could have peace and quiet. Um, she found that in a one-room cottage here in O'Galley, um, and she rented it. She had a, a pretty good rental agreement, and she used that time to fish in the Indian River and to enjoy nature, and she put together her folklore stories in a book which was published called Mules and Men. Virginia Lynn Moylan is author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, published by University Press of Florida. The book Mules and Men was published in 1935 and was essentially a nonfiction account of Hurston's adventures and experiences as a folklorist and anthropologist in the late 1920s and early 1930s. It's divided into two sections. The first section is devoted to her experiences in Eatonville collecting folklore and includes 70 of her glorious folktales, including why women always take advantage of men. The second section covers the period that she uh, did research in New Orleans into hoodoo religion and practices and even became a priestess. 
And the book is important not just from the standpoint of its entertainment value, but it was the first book of folklore that recorded the tales exactly as they were spoken. And today it is still considered the preeminent collection of African American folklore. Eighty years ago, Zora Neale Hurston wrote her best-known and much-loved work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, Flo Turcott, Lynn Moylan, and N.Y. Nathiri. Their Eyes Were Watching God is just, it's, an, it's history, it's fiction, it's pathos, it's, it's tragedy, all rolled up together in one incredible literary gem. And it, making history come alive is sort of what what I'd like to do and what Zora, that's what excites me so much about Zora is that she, she, she fictionalized real life and said a lot about the human condition and a lot about life in Florida during, during her um, stay here. My personal favorite work of Hurston's is by far Their Eyes Are Watching God. It's a, it's a beautiful novel. It's a love story about a woman who not only finds her true love, but she finds her own inner strength and her voice. And it just doesn't get any better than that. Zora Neale Hurston is a part of my family lore. I did not really understand who she was in the literary uh, realm until I was uh, older. I was actually, I actually read Their Eyes Are Watching God when my, after our first son was born, uh, that, that book was a Penguin classic that cost 99 cents. And when I was trying to, uh, while my son was napping, I would, that's how I, that's how I read that book. I, I know Zora Neale Hurston from my, my mother's mother uh, telling us about her, her uh, companionship with Zora Neale Hurston, sometimes uh, scaring me uh, with uh, uh, folk tales from Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, in fact, my husband uh, did uh, literary research on Zora Neale Hurston. There are any number of people that were around me over a period of time, uh, but I did not truly come to understand who she was until I read that book and um, then began to reconnect some of the, uh, some of the impact that she that she had. Throughout the 1930s and 40s, Zora Neale Hurston was celebrated as an accomplished and sometimes controversial writer, folklorist, and anthropologist. In 1948, Hurston was devastated when she was falsely accused of molesting the 10-year-old son of her former Harlem landlady. The charges were dismissed and the boy recanted his claims, but Hurston's reputation and career were destroyed. And why theory? She was falsely accused of molestation of a a young boy, um, falsely accused, completely uh, vindicated because she was not in the United States when the alleged abuse occurred or, or crime occurred. But the black press um, picked up the story after she was vindicated and uh, really ruined her reputation. I think that she uh, fled back to her home state. After leaving New York, Hurston lived briefly in Miami and Belglade before moving to Brevard County. She moved into the same O'Galley cottage where she had been happy and productive at the beginning of her career. 
When Hurston was unable to purchase her cottage in Ogalley, she moved to an apartment in Cocoa and then to a trailer on Merritt Island. During this period, she worked as a librarian. Virginia Lynn Moylan. Hurston was fired from Patrick Air Force Base as a technical librarian, basically because she supported a whistleblower um, colleague who had turned in one of his supervisors for destroying documents without going through the proper authorization. So she collected unemployment for a while and finally was offered a job by a man named C.E. Bolin who had founded a newspaper in Fort Pierce called the Fort Pierce Chronicle. So she moved very soon afterward and went to Fort Pierce to take the job in 1957. Zora Neale Hurston died in January 1960 in the St. Lucie County Welfare Home. She was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Florence M. Turcott. She was a ward of the, of, the, of the county, and when she died, her effects thus were ordered burned. They were ordered destroyed. Um, nobody had come forward to claim them. Um, a friend of hers, who was a sheriff's deputy, was going by the nursing home at the time and stopped and literally doused the flames and uh, saved a bunch of her um, manuscripts that were uh, about to be destroyed. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is more popular than ever. Annual festivals in Eatonville and Fort Pierce celebrate her legacy. Hurston's work is taught in high schools and colleges around the world. And why theory? An IB International Baccalaureate uh, teacher of 11th grade students in Hampton, Virginia is planning to uh, bring her students to Eatonville for a field trip. And as we were talking about the planning and the budget, I said, well, will they be uh, doing Disney or Universal? She said, no, <laughs> we're coming to Eatonville. And that's the only reason that we're coming to Florida is coming to Eatonville. And after we do this uh, day, then we will be returning. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting to see that now, if you're going to be educated, you have to have read Zora Neale Hurston. We spoke with Virginia Lynn Moylan, author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, Florence M. Turcott, literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida, and N.Y. Nathiri, founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. The cam got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm gonna take it if it make me mad, shove it over. Hey, hey, oh, can't you lie that? like a like a like a like a like a can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like the Florida Historical Society Caribbean Conference Cruise sailing May 16th through 23rd, fascinating presentations on board ship, exciting tours of historical sites related to Florida history, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Oh, won't you show me the way Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, in the late 19th century, railroads allowed more people access to Florida than ever before. What greeted someone when they stepped off the train during that period? 
Well, when somebody got off the train in, say, 1885, 1890 in Florida, for most of the southern part of the state, it was fairly rural. You really stepped off into into the last frontier, if you will, in, in America. There was very little infrastructure. Railroads, you know, at that time were few and far between. Dirt roads connected these small towns. And a lot of these towns were really just starting, and they were centered around usually some sort of agricultural enterprise. Citrus was becoming very popular at this time as a commercial export in Florida. But you had a lot of people moving to Florida and starting up their own subsistence farms, people coming from the Northeast and from places as far away as Europe. They were trying to eke out a living on, again, what was considered the last really frontier in America, the southern part of Florida. And not to mention that there were certain incentives to move to Florida. Land was still fairly cheap by late 1880s, 1890s. And there were other industries that were beginning to grow as well, including the tourism industry. So wealthy financiers, including Henry Flagler and and Henry Plant, started building railroads, but also building these elaborate hotel systems. So people moved here to support that infrastructure. Folks moved here to help build up roads and build railroads. But a lot of people moved their families to Florida to begin this kind of agrarian life because it was fairly cheap and it was an opportunity to own land. So people could leave cities, come to Florida, own 10, 20, 30 acres of land, cultivate part of that land and and kind of live on your own. It was this agrarian ideal that people uh, attempted to attain when they moved to Florida at this time period. And it was really just a matter of a lot of things happening at the right time, a confluence of things coming together that allowed this kind of mass migration into Florida. But remember, too, that by 1890, the population density was still only about two people per square mile. So it was still very, very rural. But that was changing rather quickly. Ben, you have here one of those original guidebooks published in 1889. Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we're looking at is a first edition, first printing of a book called Home Life in Florida. And as you said, it was published in 1889 by Helen Garney Warren. She actually published the book under the pseudonym Helen Harcourt. And she was fairly popular in Florida. She had published a few other small pamphlets and and books about how to grow citrus in Florida and, and how to produce a small subsistence crop in Florida. But this was really her her largest work, her most comprehensive work, Home Life in Florida. And it's really packed with very, very detailed information. So people were moving to Florida. And with that came a lot of these ancillary industries that, that really catered to the newcomer who was moving into Florida. So for example, you had land speculators come down here to sell people this new land. You had people who were selling farming implements But then you also had this other kind of cottage industry, which was writing travel brochures and travel pamphlets and books just like this one. It became its own industry. And Home Life in Florida is unique in that it goes into really the granular detail that talks about everyday life. How do you actually make something like this work? How do you make this transition work? And I think that the author was really trying to convey to people that there's certainly a lot of misinformation. So yes, there's this land boom. People are coming to Florida quickly, but it it isn't easy. There are certainly some struggles that one would need to contend with, but they also can make it work. And she and her family had made it work. They had moved to around central Florida in the early 1880s. So she had been living in the state for for about a decade and had compiled all of this information. And, you know, her chapters are broken up into, there's a brief history of Florida, talks a little bit about the most modern uh, land boom, but some of her other chapter headings include 
climate and health, how to deal with the temperature, what will it cost? And, and she actually breaks it down into dollar amounts so you know exactly how much it might cost. Some other chapter headings include home supplies, out of the depths, you know, uh, what you could get from the rivers. And, and one of the first things you needed was a boat as an important tool if you were living in Florida. How to raise cows and cattle, whether or not to get a milk cow, where can you get a milk cow, how much will it cost, having chickens on your farm, where to find woods. And, and she kind of talks about in great detail some of these particular things that the newcomers should think about before they come to Florida. Bugs and a difficult climate were certainly challenges for early pioneers, but that wasn't all, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. The author talks a little bit about some other issues that one might face when they come to Florida. And one in particular we need to kind of think about, and it can be difficult to read, but if you think about it in the time, she writes a chapter about domestic help. So she comes to Florida, here is someone who's trying to build a home, and they want to hire someone to help with chores and things like that around the house. So she goes into great detail talking about African-Americans working in the house, and it's clouded with a lot of stereotypical you know, tropes about racial differences and things like that. And the problem is that a book like this perpetuated that. So a lot of Northern visitors or folks who were moving to Florida would read this sort of information and think, oh, okay, that must be how it is, and then apply that to their lives and then moved here. And it kind of unfortunately helped to perpetuate a lot of these problems and issues in Florida that carried on into the 20th century. So she has an entire chapter about that. She also has a chapter about some of the more wild creatures that somebody might run into. In fact, she has a quote here I'll read about her first interaction with one of these creatures. She says here, quote, when we first came over to Florida, we had only made acquaintance with pigs in the city markets, drawn and quartered. We liked them very there. They looked so fat, clean, and comfortable. No visions of the future marred our then complacency as regarded hogs. En route to our Florida home, we passed on the road, or more correctly, wagon track, a group of queer black objects, bodies long, lean, with backs that look like the inverted keel of a vessel, legs slim and suggestive of stilts, snouts sharp and pointed, eyes like beads, and tails in many instances destitute of the far-famed graceful curve of a pig's tail. What are those things, we explained. Surely you can't call them hogs. Well, replied our driver slowly, he was a genuine cracker, I don't just rightly know. We calls them razorbacks. No, I don't reckon they is hogs, unquote. <laughs> so she talks about her interaction with seeing the now famous feral hogs that inhabit today even much of the Florida backwoods. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the guidebook we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. As we discussed earlier in the program, the 31st annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities will be held January 25th through February 2nd. Holly Baker spoke with Hurston scholar Cheryl Wall. Every year since 1990, the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community has presented the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, also known as Zora Festival. Zora Festival is named in honor of the American author, anthropologist, and folklorist Zora Neale Hurston. The week-long festival takes place in Hurston's hometown of Eatonville, Florida. Zora Festival, inspired by Zora Neale Hurston's celebration of black culture, history, and life, now attracts tens of thousands of visitors every year. I spoke to Dr. Cheryl Wall during the 30th Zora Festival. 
Dr. Wall is an author and a professor of English at Rutgers University in New Jersey. She's been a scholar of Zora Neale Hurston for more than 40 years. She's also been a fixture at Zora Festival in Eatonville for many years, and she's seen its evolution from an intimate festival to a global celebration. The first one I came to, which was not the first one, but was in the 90s, um, the vendors, the food vendors were the churches of Eatonville. Um, it was a very um, kind of intimate festival. And I mean, it's w wonderful to see how the festival has grown, how the town has grown, how now it has, uh, the festival has an international component, which I think speaks to the growing influence and um, influence of and appreciation for Zora Neale Hurston. By the time of her death in 1960, Zora Neale Hurston's literary legacy was largely forgotten. Alice Walker's 1975 article published in Ms. Magazine called In Search of Zora Neale Hurston brought attention to her work and introduced her to a wider audience. Like many people I spoke to at Zora Festival, Dr. Cheryl Wall told me that she was introduced to the work of Zora Neale Hurston while in college. I read There Eyes Are Watching God. Before that, though, as an undergraduate at Howard University, I studied with Sterling Brown, who was a pioneering um, scholar of African-American literature who was a poet and um, who was somebody that had known Hurston um, in the late um, 20s and early 30s, though was not necessarily a fan of hers, um, but like her, was deeply interested in African-American folklore. Some of the things I read in Hurston, some of the expressions were expressions I had heard all my life, but I'd never seen in a book. And I think that was the first thing that drew me uh, to her, that she was writing about things I knew but had never really studied. I didn't know were available for study, and that just made me interested in finding out more about her and reading more about her, reading more of her writing, and um, she's a gift that has kept on giving for me. Eatonville, Florida, the childhood home of Zora Neale Hurston, was established in 1887. It was one of the first all-black incorporated towns in the United States. Hurston was proud of her Eatonville roots, and she used the town as a setting for many of her stories, including her well-known novel from 1937 called Their Eyes Were Watching God, Dr. Cheryl Wall. It gave her a perspective that was very much unlike the perspective of most black Americans of her time or any time, really, um, because she grew up in an independent and autonomous black community. Um, she never had a doubt that black people could be in leadership roles, that her father had been elected mayor three times. So it just seemed that that was, it was normal, it was the expected thing, which of course was in sharp contrast to the experiences of um, the vast majority of black people in this country. The independent spirit of Eatonville and of Zora Neale Hurston continues to inspire a large audience to make the pilgrimage to Zora Festival every year. The way that her name and her work now circulates so widely across generations, across countries, across all kinds of um, lines that had in her lifetime been so rigidly drawn, I just think it's, it's, it's wonderful. And it's, it's the kind of respect and interest she deserves, but frankly, I could not have ever predicted that she would enjoy it. This interview is an excerpt from the podcast of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities called Every Tongue Got to Confess. 
The podcast explores black culture, history, and life by listening to the voices of attendees at the Zora Festival. For more information about the festival, please go to zorafestival.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.